Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. 710 ESPN presents The Experience Experience with Laverne Cusack. Where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of the experience, the Fern Cusack. Fern Cusack. Today we're talking about the tools, a dynamic, results-oriented set of practices that can free you from suffering and unleash your full potential with Dr. Bill Stutz. In today's show, we're going to talk about the reversal of desire. We're going to talk about the tower and, of course, fear. And then I'm going to mix some tools together and create my own tool, which uh, Dr. Stutz will break it down for me and get me right back on track. The experience never stops. Never stops. On your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laferne Cusack. I'm speaking with the great Dr. Phil Stutz. He's author of Coming Alive, Four Tools to Defeat Your Inner Enemy, Ignite Creative Expression, and Unleash Your Soul's Potential, and The Tools, Five Tools to Help You Find Courage, Creativity, and Willpower, and Inspire You to Live Life in Forward Motion, which is a New York Times bestseller. You are living your best life, aren't you, Phil? Yeah, I am. It's my only life. <laughs> it was kind of overwhelming, all the promises you made, but I'll do my best. Okay. Well, you are referred to as the most sought-after shrink in Hollywood. I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's a compliment or, or an insult, but yeah, probably <laughs> I am. How did you get into this industry? Uh, I always wanted to be a shrink. I think from the time I was like 14, 15 years old, obviously it was something that was faded. I questioned it in medical school briefly because I liked surgery. I was good at it because I I have good dexterity, but I couldn't get up at at 5 o'clock in the morning, which is what a surgeon has to do. So that was out. I I went back to psychiatry. At that time, choosing psychiatry was considered like... um, chicken you know it was like <laughs> the lowest specialty on the list really and uh yeah i i remember saying i remember exact moment i decided i, w- I was going to apply for a psychiatric residency and i said okay i'm going to be poor but this is what i love it's, it's what i'm good at there was nothing else i was really suited for it why do you love it so much it's interesting to me you know it's not just because a lot of things in medicine are repetitive i mean medicine's fantastic now with all the new you know breakthroughs and everything but but basically it's the same thing over and over again I, I never felt that about psychiatry even though people always ask me do you get tired of hearing the same problems but the answer is no because i'm not that fixated on the problems i'm i'm actually fixated on the person mm-hmm. which you know sounds kind of corny but it's it's true i'm also like a um what do you call it i'm a frustrated novelist you know fiction writer also <laughs> and this is if you think that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about like all what you do and how much time and patience you put into your clients. You call them clients, correct? 
or the people you work with? Uh, I call them patients. Patients. But I'm old school. Yeah. But it's it like for me, it would seem like a lot of energy to expend. But the way you say it, I can see what a joy it is to be able to do that. Yeah, the energy doesn't bother me. What bothers me is just being trapped in a room for such a, you know, person after person. I, I don't do that many sessions anymore. When, when I used to do a lot, you know, I was really held in a small space. But the Talking to the patients, especially now, I'm more aware of all these things. I think I'm more grateful for what I have now. The actual doing of a session is fun for me. Now that I'm older, I have a rule, which is if I don't really get along with the person, if I'm not in their wavelength or they're not on mine or whatever, I don't kill myself. I just go to the next person. So I have a I have a group of people, most of whom I've treated for a very long time as well. Mm-hmm. Just I'm happy to see them which makes a huge difference. Huge. Yes. Yeah. And you approach your work in a, a very dynamic way, a, a way that other people don't see it. Can you talk about how you approach the tools and how you came up with it? Yeah. Here's, here's what happened to me. I was, you know, I was young and stupid, but I had strong <laughs> instincts. And yeah. um, the, the way I was taught to do psychotherapy now, I don't know that they teach psychiatrists how to do psychotherapy under any circumstances because psychiatry has changed. You know, it's, it's so medic, medication oriented. But anyway, back in the day, psychiatrists were supposed to do psychotherapy, actually psychoanalysis at that time. And psychoanalysis is very passive, very meandering, slow process. And a lot of these people that I was getting, you know, as an early young psychiatrist, they were in a lot of pain. They had they had horrible problems, you know. They were thinking of killing themselves. They had panic attacks that were debilitating. They didn't know how to communicate very well. They were isolated, you know, on and on and on. So mm-hmm. I, I felt like I can't, if somebody comes in to see me with a problem that's ruining their life, I have to do something that will give them some hope that this could change. And, you know, the attitude of the psychoanalyst was, don't you dare do anything like that. Just wait, and you wait patiently, and eventually they'll come to it themselves, which is, at that time and now, almost 50 years later, I still feel the same way. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and now it's it's been discredited. I mean, nobody would dare do that anymore. But um, I wasn't seeing the, these spontaneous uh, revelations <laughs> happening to the people I was treating. All I was seeing was more suffering and more putting it off, well, how do you feel, come back next week, whatever. And mm-hmm. also being somewhat skeptical person, I, I felt a lot of it was financial. You know, it was like, it was like giving the keeping the patient on the hook, so to speak, with a promise of something that, I, as far as I was seeing, just wasn't happening. Right. So I, I had a, um, a supervisor, and I told him all my complaints and fears and worries and guilt and everything. And basically, I said, look, is there a way to do this where I can give the patient some relief? I can give them some hope. I can give them a sense of change as possible, even to the smallest degree. And uh, he said, no, don't you dare interfere with the psychoanalytic process. They'll come up with it themselves. You have Mm -hmm. to be patient. And I told the guy, (laughs) I said, is that why they're called patients? He didn't (laughs) like that too much. (laughs) That was the beginning of me kind of going my own way with this. Here's the thing. I had to give them something that they could hold on to. And at the very least, I had to give them a concept that would make sense. But 
really better than that, some techniques where they could feel something shift, even if it was to the smallest degree. And I didn't know how to do that. Now, looking back, I called the next step, which is, so let's say somebody was um, abused, let's say, by a parent, and, and as a result, is socially phobic, very, very insecure, isolated, just as an example. Mm-hmm. And they grew up in a horrible environment. So you want to connect for them the connection between what happened to them when they were younger and, and the way they are now. And so, in, in essence, you're saying you're having a lot of feelings that don't belong in the present, they belong in your past. And seeing that connection, so that 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 most shrinks could do if they're good, they can get to that point. But that's not enough. The next step is then, after you understand where the problem has come from, is to some degree anyway, it's genesis, then you have to do something, and the doing is not understanding. It's not usually even talking. You have to do something that will either change your behavior, their behavior, and or change their internal feelings, preferably both. So, And that's the next step. And what I've found is if you can't take that next step, if you just get up to, oh, yeah, here's what caused your problem, etc., the whole thing doesn't work. It's, mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's bullshit. Um <laughs> So um, I set out to to do that. How do how do I get the patient to take the next step into a world where the, where things look different, they feel different, they're behaving differently? Again, even if it's for to a limited degree, and even if it doesn't last very long, how do I do that? So and that's why I came up with the idea of tools. And what I would do was now looking back at this, it was really um, very presumptuous of me. But let's say like somebody was frightened, just as an example. Okay. Um, and they're, they're, let's say it's a salesman. He's he's too scared to reach out to new people. Uh, that he has to make cold calls. This is an example. So the 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 big issue there is fear, right? Let's say like fear yeah. of rejection. So I decided let me, let me see if I can devise a tool that would help somebody get through their fear, at least to the extent they can make a few more phone calls. You know, because even that, or that, or they could approach people that were, let's say maybe I'm more threatening because of their position in the world and the, the, the salesman guy, you know, felt so inferior. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, what matters is I, I tried to think of a tool that would speak to that problem. And it, it, at first, it took a very long time. The tool that I ended up with, it's probably still the most popular tool. It's called the reversal of desire. Uh, desire, now, yes. Yeah, so most people like to avoid anything that scares them or anything that's painful. So their desire is avoidance. Now, the problem is if you're dealing with fear and you, your um, solution to it is to avoid anything, that, those situations that scare you, your actual fear of fear goes up. It, it actually expands. And that that's called the law of fear. It means if if you... Avoid fear. If you back away from it, it actually gets worse. It's like a monster that's going to bite your head off. The only way to diminish fear is to go right into it, to go for it. And it's the second part of the law of fear, if you challenge the fear, if you're willing to put yourself through it and feel it, then your fear of fear, so to speak, diminishes. So you go you go into fear, you get less scared. You back away from it, you get more scared. You know, when you're a kid, a lot of times if you've been in like in a street fight or something, you know, you're a little mm-hmm. kid. Before you get in the fight and somebody's taunting you or something, the whole thing is terrifying. 
But once you throw the first punch or he throws the first punch, it's not like you feel good or you love it, but you're less frightened because you're now inside the thing you've been avoiding. Right. So it's a it's a tremendous principle. But anyway, the point because you asked me how do I develop these things, is it's all by trial and error. And it's you know if you, if you try to do something like a thousand times, eventually you get something that's somewhat coherent and somewhat effective. My attitude was there's always a tool. You just don't know it yet. You know it's like that thing Michelangelo said. There's a figure inside the marble, but I have to release the figure, but it's already there. That's that's how I felt about these tools and. To this day, I'm still developing them. There's probably a good 40 or 50 of them. And, and there's going to be a book that's going to come out at the end of this year, which is it's going to be called 21 Tools. And that'll be the, the 21 most relevant, most needed tools, I think. And, and the way we're going to st- structure the book is if whatever your problem is, let's say you, you're, um, you get panic attacks on an airplane, just as an example. I would work on the on the tool, and then I'd, I'd work on it some more and work on it some more until I was satisfied that I had found the correct way to use the tool. I mean, it's somewhat subjective, but whether I'm crazy or it's you know I'm a perfectionist or whatever, I I, I really felt with each with each problem there was a correct tool, right. and with each tool there was a correct way to do it. And mo- mostly, the guinea pig was me for the most part. Um, very good. And I had enough problems where I could keep that going for years. Anyway, I'm talking <laughs> too much. No, you're not. Hey, so we had conversations before about, you know, the tools and, you know, I'd share some stuff with you. And, you you know, as, you know, these few months when you were teaching me about the tools, I remember one day I was driving in uh, to work and I was dreading going in like something horrible was going to happen. I don't know what. I was just dreading it. And I, as I was going down Vine Street, I was like, what? I I imagine myself as a surfer. Yeah, black girl surfer. And Uh I'm sitting there waiting for the wave to come. I don't know how big that wave is going to be, but I'm ready for it. And then I imagine that as me going into work, going to tackle this big project or whatever. And by the time I made it down to Melrose, I was on the huge wave. The huge wave came in and I said, bring it. And I'm riding the wave and I'm riding it great. And it's, I'm like, I can handle this. I can do this. You know, I've been waiting for this all of my life. Bring it, bring the pain, bring it. Yeah, that's excellent. That's actually a conflation of two separate tools. It's using the reverse of the desire, but there's another tool involved in that, which is probably worth mentioning, called radical acceptance. In other words, if something happens to you that's not good or painful or depressing or demoralizing or whatever, accepting and saying, okay, what's done is done, I can't change it, that's good, that's acceptance. But radical acceptance is different. Radical acceptance says, I accept what is, what's happened so deeply, so profoundly, that I'm, I'm going to squeeze the juice out of that experience, no, no matter how painful it is, so that I insist on getting more than what I, I came in with or for, I guess. And let me give you an example of that because it has to do with the surf. If, let's say you're a surfer, you're in the lineup, you're waiting for a wave. Now, you can't possibly know in advance what the size, shape, speed, anything about the wave until it gets there, right? So you have to be ready for anything. 
when the wave finally comes, you want to react to it. You want to react to that wave as if you've been waiting for it all your life, as if, as if it's the most perfect wave you could possibly imagine. And that that's called mastery. In other words, a, a master accepts anything and everything that happens and then responds to it as if it was exactly what they've been waiting for their whole life. And you say, what, are you crazy? You know, what, what if a two-inch wave comes in, you know? But the, the point of it is that radical acceptance, which if you want to say it differently, that this event is perfect, no matter how imperfect it, it appears. That sense of perfection or it's what I've been waiting for all my life or any which way you want to describe it, that's what squeezes the juice out of the experience. In other words, when you make the experience your highest goal, even though you had no idea what it was going to be because you didn't know how big the wave was going to be, right? when you make, when you make that your almost feel it like a life and death desire to have it at that point you've actually radically accepted uh what's happened and therefore you can take it it's, it's like anything that happens to you you can squeeze the juice out of it through radical acceptance and you you keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger so the master the, the definition of mastery is let's say if you take the surfer he, no matter what the wave is, how big it is, small, whatever the speed, he will respond to it as if it's absolutely perfect. And you can see it, you know, in performance, like surfing and singing. You can see it in, um, in a lot of athletics, anything with performance. The people that are really masters, you can, you can see it. They're, they're at home no matter what's happening. No matter what's happening, they feel it's perfect. And that's, you know, that's what you call a flow state. So it's, it's a very, very helpful tool, and it's the opposite of that tool is judgmentalism, which is, that the wave sucks, I'm going to sit it out, or I'm, I'm going to go home, or wh- whatever it is that you, you know. And the problem with doing that, it may be true in a sense, but the problem with doing that is you're actually in a passive position. You need, you need a certain kind of wave to feel good about yourself, and the mastery is, I'll take any wave and I'll, I'll feel good about it. And mm-hmm. it's so counterintuitive. It takes people usually a couple of months to actually grasp what I'm saying because to a person, they all say, well, if, if I'm, if I don't know what's coming and whatever is coming, I accept it. Won't that make me naive? Right. Mm-hmm. But it's, this tool does not make you naive. It, it gives you the sense of mastery. And a lot of times you, after you get that feeling of radical acceptance, this is perfect, you still may want to change your behavior. You may want to go to a different beach or take up tiddlywings instead of surfing. Or it's a, <laughs> yeah. But for, the first shot at this has to be radical acceptance. So if, yeah. so anyway, that, so that's what you were doing driving down the hill there. So is it like having, you know, people say, well, be careful what you ask for. You may get it. So I ask for a certain position or job and I get it and it's nothing that I thought it was, but it's actually perfect. I don't identify with my job. I don't use it as a sense of identity, but I'm accepting of what it is. Yes. 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 And you're a pretty enthusiastic person anyway. Me? Enthusiastic? (laughs) (laughs) I have no comment. Um, <laughs> so yes, the the idea of of joy, euphoria, satisfaction, all of those things, people don't realize that you have a choice about that. You can feel those things 
if you decide that you want to. See, the thinking part of the mind says, oh, no, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to think something is good when it's really bad or antithetical. But my answer to that always is whatever you think, whatever you think of it, the event has already happened. It's over. So mm. why would you want to feel like shit? When you can, you, when you when you can feel good about, and you may not feel good even about the event, but you feel good about your attitude towards right. the event. So the, the the mind is free to choose its state to a much 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 uh, higher degree than most people realize. Now, mm-hmm. because we're getting into brain neurophysiology um, and you know the, the the science of happiness, which is a Whole other thing. Now people are starting to accept, you know, what these shrinks will call um, neuroplasticity. It it just means you can rewire the brain to a remarkable degree. It used to be, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it was assumed that whatever um, amount of neurons you had in the brain and their configuration and the Mm -hmm. pathways was fixed. At that time, I think they, they, they certainly felt it was fixed by age 12, but usually before that, and they found that it's, it's just not the case. To, with these tools, I had been rewiring the brain for years. I just I had no proof of it, and I didn't think of it so much in terms of wiring, but once this stuff came out, I saw that, you know, it, I didn't really feel like, well, I discovered it first. It, it didn't bother me. I felt like it's good for the patients. Yeah. It's, it's good for everybody. What you do, you do it all on yourself, so you, you're actually, like you said, using yourself as a guinea pig, but You've done it. And I think that adds yeah. value for, you know, someone that's coming to see you or, or needs your help. Yeah, it, it actually adds tremendous value because you can see when I'm when I'm teaching them a new tool, which almost every new tool seems strange. And it should be because, it, again, we're trying to rewire and reconfigure your, your everyday habits, your, mm-hmm. your emotional and mental habits. But they, when they're, they're going to look at me and say, is this guy crazy? Is this going to really work? And what they see in my eyes is not necessarily that I'm so, you know, smart or I'm so great. It's more like they see in my eyes, this guy is hes crazy. He's a fanatic. And he actually uses these things for himself all the time. And that it was developed through a pretty painstaking trial and, trial and effort in terms of its efficacy. That's part of the bond between me and the, and the uh, patients. I, I try to teach younger shrinks this because, again, there's still a, a little bit of passivity in, in terms of how you're supposed to treat a patient. But if the patient sees you, you're, you the shrink, is, is drinking your own medicine, so to speak, it creates a credibility. Even if they don't agree with you, it, it creates a certain amount of of credibility because they see you're committed. And right. it can't be emphasized enough that to help a patient, you have to be committed yourself. They right. they don't want somebody to tell them, um, well, what do you think? Or I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answers to that. Go inside yourself. They don't, yes. they don't like that. They don't want it because it's not that you, you can't ask them to go inside themselves. And I do a lot with helping people trust their instincts if we have time, we can talk about it too, uh, relevant to that. It, it's not that I don't want them to, to work on it themselves. I just want them first to feel there's some hope that this is doable. And it, at least I'm willing to eat my own cooking, so to speak. It's 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 on a very, very instinctual level. And mo- most things between human beings that really matter are on that level. It's It's not a level of rationality. Mm-hmm. There's a place for rationality in psychiatry in terms of 
evaluating new treatments, evaluating medications, you know, avoiding side effects. Mm-hmm. But this is a, this is a different thing, and, and the the trick is to have be on both sides of the line on this. Well, you talk about how people may look at you and say, "What? He's crazy." What I did, I was like, "Oh my God, th- is this guy for real? Is he for real? <laughs> He's a genius." I'm sure you have a lot of people calling you a genius. Yeah, now that I'm older, yeah, <laughs> I don't take it seriously, but yeah. <laughs> Well, you need some radical acceptance then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's very sharp of you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I can imagine a lot of people, I mean, in, including myself, in the, these times now with COVID-19, there's a lot of anxiety yeah. and a lot of fear and a lot of well, grief, because people around me are dying, you know, yeah. how, how do you go about helping people that may be going through that type of anxiety? All right. It's a multiple, multiple question. I like to throw things at you. I just threw it no, at no, you. The first part of the question again. <laughs> how do you deal with COVID-19 when, if you have a lot of anxiety oh, okay. about it. Yeah, this is a continuation of what we said before about fear. Here's the, here's the thing. Fear has to do with the future. In other words, fear is your trepidation, fright, whatever you want to call it, of an event that may happen in the future. Now, since the thing may happen in the future, you, there's no way you can control it. It's not happening now anyway. So the the way to deal with fear is you, you have to come back into the present. You see, and the first thing I do, I tell people is you can be as afraid as you want. In fact, I, I ask them to become more afraid, but you can't link it up to some event. Now, and there's, there's a tool that goes along with that, which is called the tower, which is a really good tool. The purpose of the tool is to face fear completely in the present only. And it was disconnected from, from the, the event that you're worried about. Because in the in the present, fear becomes plastic. It becomes mutable. You can work with it. You can't work with your fear of an event in the future because the event hasn't happened yet. No matter how hard you try to be rational about it and mm-hmm. explain to yourself why it probably won't happen, it, it really doesn't work. The only thing that works is disconnecting. And I'll show you right now how to do it in this tool. Okay. So you want to take, let's say for you, what, what would be a, a really frightening prospect, a scary event that might happen. That uh, they say go, they open the schools back up and my son goes back to school and he, and he gets, you know, sick. And he, he get, he, yeah, he gets sick. Okay. That's, that's perfect. Now I want you to feel that, or fear of his being sick. Feel that as strongly as you can. Make, feel it so strongly, it's almost as if it's already happened. Okay. Good. Now, make it even stronger. Now, this time what you want to do is make that feeling in you so strong that it actually kills you, mm-hmm. as strange as that may seem. And you're lying on your back on the ground. You're dead. Yeah. And you hear this voice, and the voice says, only the dead survive. It's like an authoritative voice. It's almost like God speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Now, the moment that you hear that voice, you realize you're on the bottom of this tower. It's, it's, let's say, 30 feet high, and it's round. It's open on top. You look way up the top of the tower, and you see a sun. It's a beautiful, radiant sun up there. 
So up there, it looks like paradise. But down here, you're at the bottom of this tunnel, so to speak, feeling paralyzed. Now, when you look up, the moment you look up, your whole body becomes light in both senses of the word. In other words, you're no longer a dead um, piece of meat just lying there. You're infused by light. And, and as you feel this light come into your body, you feel yourself floating upwards. You mm-hmm. float up very gradually. It takes no effort on your part. You just float up, 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 and then you you cast out the top of the tower. Now, when you when you when you cast out the top of the tower, you feel you're much closer to that sun. And what you want to feel is your physical body has been transformed. So it's like you have a new body. It's brand new. It's like a car with you know two miles on it. Mm-hmm. It's going to last. So what you've done is. You've taken yourself through, it's really a death metaphor, you know, the beginning of that tool, and and then followed it up with a rebirth, which is going up the, uh, the tower, so to speak. After you do that once, you, then you do it again, but you do it faster. So the death, you know, you feel your fear, terror, you, you feel you, you're killed by and you're lying down. It happens really fast. And then the thing where you're born up, up the tower also happens very fast. And then you do it a third time. So fast that it's just boom, boom. It was mm-hmm. just like death, rebirth, death, rebirth. So what happens is you're admitting that there's fear, but you're not admitting that the fear is going to end you or make it impossible to go on. So you've separated out. See, once the once the fear at the beginning of the tool, the fear kills you, and then mm-hmm. everything that happens after that uh, has nothing to do with what goes on in the future. The feelings you're having are the feelings that are connected to going up the tower. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like a surprise tool. You think you're dead, and then all of a sudden, somebody says, well, it's only the dead that survive. And the the way you think about that, that everything is cyclic. And this is is the classic tool of death and rebirth, which is a a cyclic experience. So the person who's willing to go, but in order to go through the cyclic experience, the first thing you have to do is die. Now this is I'm not asking anybody to jump out the window. This is a um, metaphor right. or you know, symbolic. But there's something about human nature where if you can go through something like that and come out the other side and, and the reborn body, you know, there's a lot of um precedent for that, you know, obviously in Christianity probably more than anywhere else. Right. Um but but for our purposes the reborn body isn't really a physical thing. It's it's like your soul is reborn, so to speak. In, in terms of the, the original question, it would mean that your soul can undergo a big loss and still keep going, which uh-huh. is, you know, very, very important to people. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's very powerful. Well, Phil, you've definitely shared a lot of insight here, and I appreciate your time. I know you're busy and you're working at uh, 100% while most of us is work, working at 3% of our whole entire life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to be like you feel. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's working well so far. I, I feel much better. <laughs> oh, good, good. All of your books are on Amazon. Everything. Yeah, you, you can. can uh, get it. Yeah, we also have a website. It's really good. It's everything on it is free, and there's a tremendous amount of information on there. TheToolsBook.com. Yeah, one word. The TheToolsBook.com. Yeah. Go to thetoolsbook.com. Dr. Phil Stutz. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. 
The experience never stops. Never stops. On your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laferne Cusack. So for overcoming fear, you know, step one is accepting it. Step two, identify it. Step three, feel it. Step four, face it. And step five, practice it. And you can gain a lot of satisfaction in the process. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. You've been listening to The Experience with Laferne Cusack. Getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laferne Cusack on 710 ESPN. 